0: For those of you who have been following the Eat This Book Scripture reading plan, you are just finishing up the Old Testament books of First and 2 Kings. And unless a person is pursuing a conscious Bible reading plan, these two books are probably not read very often by Christians. And if I were to ask you this morning to vote on your favorite book of the Bible... My guess is that 1st and 2nd Kings would not receive many votes. That doesn't mean, of course, that there's nothing of value in it. 1st and 2nd Kings give an account of the 40 kings who ruled Israel after the nation split following the reign of Solomon. 20 kings ruled the northern tribes for about 245 years. 20 kings ruled the two southern tribes for a total of 375 years but the purpose of these two books first and second kings is not simply to record the history and the exploits of these 40 kings this is history written with a purpose it was to show the success it was to show that the success of an individual king or the nation as a whole depended on the degree to which that individual was devoted to God's law. As one commentator expressed it, there's an absolute unbreakable connection forged throughout these historical books between people's faithfulness to God and their destiny. Let me say that again. There's an unbreakable connection forged throughout these historical books between people's faithfulness to God and their destiny. If you or I are to take the books of 1 and 2 Kings and read it with that simple thought in mind, looking for that connection, where is the connection in in all of these records? Asking the Lord to show us how it relates to our lives, we can read the books of 1 and 2 Kings with great benefit. Now, I've been asked this morning to preach on 2nd kings 17 and 25 those are the dual accounts of the exile the tragic end of the nations of Israel and Judah and we're going to focus specifically on 2nd kings 17 1 through 18 but before we read that passage together i want to remind you of a small detail in the new testament account of the conversion of the man Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. And whether you read that historical account in Acts chapter 9 or in Acts 26, that same detail is there. You recall that Saul, soon to be Paul, was on his way racing to Damascus to vent his hatred on the young Christian church when a blinding light from heaven suddenly flashed around him And he fell to the ground, temporarily blinded, and he was shocked by a voice that addressed him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds very simply. He says, who are you, Lord? And that life-changing answer came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this morning, I want us to focus our attention on that simple question that Paul, Saul, Paul asked Who are you, Lord? That simple question can become a very helpful tool for you in reading any part of God's Word. Who are you, Lord? That is the most important question that can occupy our minds whenever we take up God's word to read it. When we ask the question, who are you, Lord? We're asking, what does this text tell me about God? What is God like? How does he relate to us according to the scripture? And it's imperative. It is imperative that we today know what is true about God And what is not true about God? In his book, Ten Lies About God and How You Might Already Be Deceived, Erwin Lutzer identified lie number one as this God is whatever we want him to be. God is whatever we want him to be. He writes, The word God has become a canvas on which each person is free to paint his own portrait of the divine. We can draw God according to whatever specifications we please. To say, I believe in God, might simply mean that we are seeing ourselves in a full length mirror. Never, never forget that God is self defining. God is self defining. We do not get to decide who he is or what he is like. Men and women can construct and design God after their own preferences, the way they want him to be. But all of those portraits are irrelevant. The only relevant consideration is this. What has God revealed about himself? What is written in scripture? Who are you Lord, as we consider the Second Kings 17 passage this morning, we're going to be asking that question. Who are you, Lord? What has God revealed about himself in this text? Please turn in your Bibles to Second Kings 17. And in the Pew Bible, that is page 374. And as you read this text, be thinking of that question Who are you, Lord? What is God revealing about himself in this text? Follow as I begin reading in verse 1, chapter 17. In the 12th month, in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to Saul, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan on the Hebar River, and in the towns of the Medes. All of this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. And from watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who do not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers, and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols, and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. And they bowed down to all the starry host and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence, and only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel that Israel had introduced. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening the word of God. And we ask for the help and the enabling of your spirit to understand it and to apply it to our hearts and to the way we live, to our thoughts and to our actions. Thank you for privileging us to hear your word. And, Lord, as we seek to know this morning who you are, may we remember that you have spoken. May we listen to your word and humble our hearts under it. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember the historical background and the context When we come to this passage in 2 Kings 17, you'll recall that back at the very beginning of the year when uh, we began this eat the book commitment, we learned of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would make a great nation from Abraham and give them a special homeland. And out of that nation, a descendant would come who would bless all the nations of the earth. And the promises of that covenant were passed from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to the 12 sons of Jacob. And after a period of 400 years as slaves in Egypt, God delivered Abraham's descendants, enabling them to conquer the promised land in 15th century BC. You have read in your Bibles of the 300-year period of the Judges followed by the establishment of the monarchy under Saul and David and Solomon. And as we think about this historical context, there are three dates that we need to keep in mind. First of all, 931 BC. In 931 BC, the 12 tribes are split. The 10 northern tribes retain the name Israel, and the two southern tribes are called Judah and your reading in first and second kings has covered the history of Israel and Judah under these kings then in 722 BC the 10 northern tribes or Israel are conquered and carried into exile by the assyrian empire and our text today in second kings 17 focuses on the events that culminate in the defeat and the exile that took place in 722 B.C. Then in 586 B.C., the two southern tribes, Judah, are conquered and sent into exile, not under the Assyrians, but under the new super-world power, the Babylonians. The events surrounding that event in 586 are recorded in 2 Kings 25. And though there are parallel themes in the two chapters... Remember that there were two separate military conquests and subsequent exiles, one under Syria and one under Babylon, and they're separated by approximately 135 years. Now let's look at our text, understanding the context. And if you look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 17, It is a record of King Shalmaneser, the Assyrian king, conquering Hosea and the ten northern tribes. Little is really explained about the actual military defeat of Israel. We read, a, we have a little bit about the the uh, acts, of, traitorous acts of Hosea toward Shalmaneser, but and and they we're told that they took three years to conquer the capital of Samaria. But we're not told a lot. The emphasis of this chapter is on why Israel was defeated. Not the, not the details of the defeat, but why were they defeated? Look at verse 7. Now this came about, this defeat, this exile came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods. And they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And they walked in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. I want you to notice three things about why this judgment came. Number one, at the root of Israel's sin is ingratitude. We see that in verses 7 and 8, where it says, Israel sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. In that little phrase, brought them up from the land of Egypt, is a picture of the goodness and the kindness and the power of God to the benefit of his people. You may recall when Pastor Mark preached on the Ten Commandments, he pointed out to us, that in fact, in Exodus chapter 20, the first thing you read is not the commandments. The first thing you read is a word about God's grace. Exodus 20 verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. they have been slaves for 400 years. All the cruelty that goes with being slaves All the injustice of that. And God begins the statement about the commandments with saying to them, I am the God who brought you out and brought you into my covenant and and will bring you into your own land. The mercy and the goodness of God is the foundation on which the call to a holy life is built. And 2 uh, 2 Kings 17, God is reminding the reader that the one against whom Israel has sinned is the one who has shown such great mercy toward her. Secondly, the ingratitude produced a spiritual indifference and then a decline into spiritual decadence. The people were anxious to conform to the nations and to be like the nations around them. Moses had told the people, you are a people that is to be holy to God. But instead of being set apart, the people said, we're going to be the same. God said, be different. And the people said, no, we'll be the same. It says in verse 9 that they worshipped other gods from watchtower to fortified city. What does that mean? The watchtower is to represent the most sparsely populated areas of the land and the fortified city are the populous urban areas in other words from corner to corner from the sparse to the to the heavily populated all of the land has turned against the lord so now what is what is god like How does God respond to this ingratitude and rebellion against him? Having been provoked by Israel's trampling on his grace in their hot pursuit of evil things, what does God say? What does God do? Look at verse 13. In verse 12, we just read, they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. And verse 13 says, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. What was God's first response to the rebellion and their sin? Was it to ascend an invading army? No. No was to send his prophets pleading through his prophets and the message of the prophets is very simple and very clear turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments you know this was not a new message when these prophets came giving this message it was not a new message Moses in his farewell address recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 28 it's the as the nation the, tw- the, the uh, 12 tribes are poised on the, the, uh, the border of the promised land, ready to go in, ready to take their land that God has promised to them. Moses says to the people, you have a choice between blessing and curse. Remember God's commands. Remember what he has said. Walk in them and receive his blessing. But turn against him and receive a curse. This was not a new message that these prophets are now sending in the 8th century B.C. They'd heard it centuries before and was now part of their scriptures and part of their their worship. Joshua, the successor as the leader to Moses. Joshua, in his farewell address, had said to the people, Soon I will die, going the way of everything on earth. Deep in your heart, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. But as surely as the Lord your God has given you the good things he promised, he will also bring disaster on you if you disobey him. He will completely destroy you from the land, the good land he has given you. So this was not a new message when these prophets came and God sent these prophets to speak to his people who had decided to follow the ways of the nations around them and just let the world squeeze them into its mold. Moses had warned them. Joshua had warned them. And now, what is God's response? He sends prophets to them. Turn back. Remember what I said to you. Do what I said to you. Follow me and receive blessing. Do not overlook the goodness of God. It is easy to read a passage like this of the dark days in Israel and of the time of of military slaughter and being taken away into exile. It is easy to lose the goodness of God. But even as God in his goodness called them from Egypt and, and brought them out from 400 years of slavery... Even now he's appealing to them saying. Turn from evil and do what is right. What is the response of the people to this goodness of God? Do they repent? Do they regret? Do they resolve to return to the Lord? No. Their response is stubborn resistance You can find it in verses 14 through 17. Phrases like, You did not listen. You stiffened your neck. You rejected my statutes and my warnings. You followed vanity and became vain. You worshiped all the host of heaven. You made your sons and daughters pass through fire. And then the concluding statement, You sold yourselves to do evil. Think of that phrase, made their sons and their daughters pass through fire. Who would have ever guessed that the children of Israel would allow themselves so to be squeezed into the, into the mold of the culture around them, that they would allow their infant children to be offered on the flaming arms of the Moabite god, Molech. That's how far they had declined. Or think of that phrase, you followed vanity and became vain. Or in the NIV it says, you followed what was worthless and became worthless. We need to remember, we need to realize that you and I will become what we worship. That's what God is saying. You gave yourselves to vanity and you became vain. You gave yourselves to worthlessness and you have become worthless. We need to know that sin is never static. When, when we choose to harden our hearts against the Lord, we do not stay there. The way of sin, the way of sin is always down. Down, down. God says the people came to the point that they sold themselves to do evil. They didn't just happen to forget God's law or stumble. No, they got to the point that they were willing to sell themselves to do evil. And what was God's response to this stubborn resistance? Verses 17 and 18. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight and none was left except the tribe of Judah. And as I said earlier, 130 years later, the same would happen to the tribes of Judah. Look at verse 20. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. A time comes when mercy ends and judgment begins. Now, Based on this text of scripture, How should we answer that question this morning? Who are you, Lord? Certainly the first thing that we see and we need to to highlight for ourselves is this. God brings his truth before he brings judgment. Is that good news? God brings his truth before he brings judgment. When first provoked by the idolatry and the indifference of his people, he sends his prophets with a call to return and receive his blessing. You know, God is often misrepresented today, even by us as Christians. We picture God as just waiting to pounce on us when we sin. Sometimes we think he's just looking for a reason to find fault. But that's not the portrait of God in the Bible. We see his goodness, his mercy, his amazing patience. And he wants to bless his people, not judge them. We see it in this text, in this dark period of Israel's history. But you know, God sends his prophets today still. In what form? Well, it might be in the form of a Franklin Graham Gifted evangelist standing and preaching God's word, and he and he's speaking not just to unbelievers, he's speaking to God's people. It might be in the form of Pastor Mark, as you come to church each week, and God has has spoken through him, and God is speaking through him to your heart, young or old. It could be that the prophet that is that God is using as a friend who speaks an uncomfortable truth to you about the choices that you're making in your life. It could be that the prophet is the Holy Spirit himself speaking to your conscience, prodding you, disturbing you, reminding you of what is written in God's word and what you know to be true. Question. What have you done when the prophets have spoken to you? What have you done when God in his kindness and his grace reaches out to you even in your sin and rebellion as he did with his own people? What have you done with God's goodness in warning you? So we need to to realize that one thing that's true about God is that God brings his truth before he brings his judgment. We also need to remember from this text that God can be provoked to anger, to bring judgment, even severe chastening, into the lives of his people. Do you take that seriously? That that also is who God is as he's revealed himself, defining himself. I attended a pastor's conference 15 years ago in which the participants were invited to shout out the various attributes of God. What attributes were front and center? Love, mercy, goodness. What attribute of God was never mentioned? His wrath. And yet here it is so clearly as he defines himself some pastors and Bible teachers are not comfortable with what the Bible says about the wrath of God I urge you build your confidence and trust on what God's word says not the preferences and ideas of men even men who claim to speak for God you remember the words from Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 16 and 17 God's word says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. how do we bring these two truths together that God speaks his truth before he brings his judgment and God can be provoked to anger many of you are familiar with the scene from the lion the witch in the wardrobe when the three children are preparing to meet Aslan and Lucy says is, is he a man Aslan a man said Mr. Beaver sternly certainly not I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king. I tell you. I borrow the thought summarized in C.S. Lewis scene there with this simple statement. God is good, but he is not safe. God is good, but he is not safe. Men and women and young people. And let me clarify what I mean. Is God safe in the sense of being faithful to his promises? Yes. He will never deceive you. As Malachi 3.6 declares, I, the Lord, do not change. That's good news. In a world where everything else changes, the Lord says, I do not change. His promises, his word does not change. But he is not safe if you think you can presume upon his patience and presume upon his goodness. And you say to yourself, I'll give my life to Christ some other time. Or I'll give up my sin some other time. But right now, I have my own agenda. And if you think that you can claim to be saved and right with God... And yet you defiantly ignore his commandments and have little concern for holiness in your life. In that case, you are treading on dangerous ground. God is good, but he is not safe. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And someone may say, but pastor, this idea that God is good, but he's not safe. Isn't that just kind of an Old Testament idea? True for the nation of Israel, but not for the church. That objection can be answered by one simple passage from the New Testament with which you are all familiar. In 1 Corinthians 11:27 through 30, the communion passage, the Lord's Supper passage. And God's word says, so anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. He's writing to Christians. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why, note this, he's writing to Corinthian Christians. He says, that is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. How easy it is to let ingratitude come into our hearts and to lose appreciation for the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. And even to come to communion and to have it in a casual way and to continue to tolerate sin in our lives and, and to say, well, I'll deal with it some other time. And God's word says, some did not discern and treat in a worthy way the sacrifice of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. And he said, that some are weak and sick, and some have even died for that. God is good. God is good. But he is not safe. What difference should 2 Kings 17 make in our lives? First of all, does this passage have anything to do with America? After all, it's written to the nation of Israel. But remember that the word of God is written to all of us, all nations. And even in this text in verse 8, we have reference to God bringing judgment on the nations that were there before them. And if you were to go and read Amos chapters 1 and 2, you will find that, that the prophet Amos speaks to the Gentile nations and about God's, their accountability to God and God's judgment of them before he ever gets to Judah and Israel. Our God is the, is the king of the nations. He is the Lord of all the earth. And all nations are accountable to him. 9-11 was a defining moment in our nation's history. But what did it mean? What was its significance? Was God speaking to us? Was it meant to be a wake-up call to us, to the country we love? Other than Israel, has there ever been a nation in history that has enjoyed the advantages of access to God's truth that this nation has had? And yet, the drift of our culture has been clearly away from honoring God and his moral law. And In the horror of 9-11, was God sending a disaster as a warning to turn us back? God did that with the nation of Israel. God spoke through the prophet Amos, declaring, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword and along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me. The Lord is saying to Israel, I have done these things in your midst to turn you back to me, and yet you have not returned to me. Immediately after the shock of the 9-11 attack, the churches were filled. Special prayer meetings were called. And who can ever forget the image of the members of the U.S. Congress standing openly in Washington, D.C., singing God Bless America. How quickly we have forgotten. Not the event, but the sense of urgency to seek God's help. Where are we as a nation 15 years later? The drift towards secularism has become a tidal wave as our culture embraces immorality, heterosexual and homosexual, that intentionally defies the moral law of God. And expressing freedom of conscience is already punished in some parts of America if individuals choose to stand against this cultural mandate and juggernaut. We ought to be afraid for our country. Have we passed the tipping point? Just as Israel did in its response to the words of God's prophets. They stiffened their necks. They resolved that they would go their own way. And they went down, down, down into sin that they never would have conceived possible. We ought to fear for our children and our grandchildren. And those who are of my generation, we need to be very careful that we do not react like King Hezekiah, who was warned by Isaiah of the future destruction of Judah by the Babylonians. And his response was that's okay, it's far enough in the future that I'll have peace in my days. Pray for God's mercy. Pray for leaders who fear God and will govern knowing that they're going to answer to Him. Pray for leaders that will be on their knees in dependence upon Him. Pray for the church that is morally and doctrinally compromised, hardly able to be salt and light to this nation. And live each day, you personally, under the Lordship, Of Jesus Christ. We need to think not just nationally, we need to think individually. Each day, live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a big deception in the Christian church. Believers have become casual about living godly lives. There's much talk about grace, and that we're no longer under the law but little about practical holiness in our lives. It is true that we are saved by grace alone, but it is also true that grace that saves never stands alone. Too few are concerned about personal holiness. If you have been saved, you have also been called to pursue holiness in following Jesus Christ. Recall the words... Of Scripture in Titus 2 11 through 13 for the grace of God has been revealed Bringing salvation to all people and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures We should live in this evil world with wisdom righteousness and devotion to God While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed what does that text tell us? The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation. But that same grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously, soberly, and godly in this present age, looking for the coming of Christ. This is what God has called us to. Are you, in fact, living that way, believer? Are you doing that? Or are you presuming upon God's goodness and patience? Are you hiding or excusing sin? Have you, like the people of Israel, drifted into ingratitude, having forgotten the great price that God paid in his son to rescue you from perishing, from hell, and from the power of sin? This week, I've challenged you. To begin each day and to pray each day as David did, as recorded in Psalm 51. David had drifted far from the Lord, but he listened to the rebuke of the prophet that God in his goodness sent to him. And then he poured out his soul in the words of Psalm 51. This is what he prayed. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Will you this week? Make a note of that. Psalm 51 verses 10 through 12 and pray that to the Lord and ask the Lord to draw your heart back to him and to give you strength in those areas in which you are struggling And most of all, to reveal to you, are you presuming upon his patience and his grace? If your Savior is Jesus Christ, he's calling you back to himself. He's prodding you to take David's prayer and to pray it persistently in humble dependence upon the God who delights in the humble prayers of a contrite soul. Yes. God is good, but he is not safe. This week, worship him in the pursuit of holiness. Worship him with a grateful heart. Worship him with a reverent fear. And never forget, God is good, but he is not safe.